This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the garage, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. Yeah, so I take it your internet is still not working. That's correct. Okay, well, I I somehow managed to get everything working here, so uh, we're all set. Fantastic! You know, just as a little a little um little aside here, the other day I was talking to um, a vendor in town. Um, some guy was going to do some glass work for me, and I gave him my phone number, and he almost like almost yelled this out. He said. Is this a landline? <laughs> he said. He said he wasn't aware that people even had landlines anymore. Yep, we're a, a rare breed. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So, did you have a chance? I guess. Well, I'm not sure where to start exactly, but you know, I loved your email that you had sent and all the ideas. Uh, you know that you had concerning uh, this topic we're going to be talking about in terms of the uh, the inner world. And did you have a chance to read the response that I sent to you? I did, and I loved it. And I was considering starting off with that because sure. we've had many conversations. Actually, let me let me introduce you to our our listeners who may not be familiar with you. Um, sure. My guest is Rick Halterman. He is a musician, photographer, a writer. He has a couple of books out, which we've talked about on the air over the years. 
curriculum of the soul and luminescence of the ordinary. And I'm probably forgetting some of your other uh, achievements that's, and qualities. That's all peripheral. You've hit all the big points, Tonio. So thank you so much for the introduction. And so one of the things that we have talked about or that you have a term that you use that we have never, I don't think we've ever clearly defined what you mean by, and that is being in our loving. Uh-huh. And I'm surprised that I, I haven't asked you to clarify that term more. I'm sure we have gone into it somewhat, but I don't think I ever really dove directly into clearly dissecting it. Well, not dissect. Dissecting is the wrong word. That's too much of a reductionist kind of approach. But having you clearly define what you mean by that and the context in which you mean it and experience it and practice it in your life. Well, first I should explain it's not my term. It's a term that Robert Waterman and his partner, Carrie Thorne, use. So how they would define it, I'm not exactly sure. I'm more interested in how you define it because yeah, yeah. you're the one who uses it. And also, you sent me a, a verse of Rumi's in which he uses the term our yeah. loving. So this actually goes way, way back. And, yeah. we, and we know that Rumi is a, is a mystic of love. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, That's correct. Not to mention a wonderful poet of love. Yeah, yeah. But but so also a, a great mystic. So yeah. Yeah. So this question you're asking is just so great. And do I have a quick and ready answer? Um, actually, I don't. No, no, no. We don't like quick, quick answers. <laughs> we don't like quick and simple answers. We like the kind of answers that take. That could take up to an hour and a half to <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I'll probably need your help. Oh with yeah, this as I'm, well, Tonio, I'm right uh, here in, in describing this. But I think that there is a state and that doesn't exist just within humans. I think the loving exists throughout any kind of living entity on this planet and perhaps even beyond. And there is a state in which, I don't know, we could use many, many terms like peace, like calmness, like openness, like compassion. It would encompass all of those places where, in essence, we don't have any againstness going on. In fact, what was there is a term by a guy from, uh, from the MSII, the Movement for Spiritual Inner Awareness, John Morton. He says, peace is the cessation of againstness. So... I, I do this little thing with myself in terms of where do I find myself getting against whatever? And then what do I need to do to figure out how can I, at least this is my process, how do I can get, how can I get to a place of understanding so I don't get stuck in the againstness? So whenever we're in that kind of flow, uh, and and you can tell there's an openness, I think. And this is what a lot of the spiritual teachings talk about, you know, like the idea of an open heart, all that kind of stuff. But an openness to go out into the world where we really are willing to experience whatever's coming into us. And, and, and it implies 
that we're also open to all the possibilities that might be available in the next moment as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that's actually the most most critical part of of all of this is that that being fully present and available in this and and each and each successive unfolding moment you know the the endless eternal moment right yes yes exactly so i think that there is a tendency particularly in our culture that once you get into you know sort of that hallmark version of the word love and how a lot of people will use love in kind of more of a sentimental place it's not really understanding or getting to the depth and the profoundness of what this concept of love or the loving and i think the reason why whether it was rumi or robert waterman whoever think about loving is that it becomes an action rather than just a concept right so how do we actually live the you know that this larger concept on our day-to-day moment-to-moment basis like for instance just just this past week i was in this grocery store where i go all the time it's an organic place and the and the people who work there are are for the most part local so if they're local they're really quite amazing because to grow up in a town like Taos, New Mexico, you have to be grounded or you're going to get taken out. It's just that crazy here. And one of the clerks who I love playing with, she has an incredible sense of humor. She said, you know, Rick, you're, there's no other customer here who's like you. And I said, what are you talking about, Maria? She said, you're the only person who talks to us like we're not wallpaper. And, and, I, and I was kind of taken aback and saying, but you guys, you know, I said, well, part of it Maria, was that way back when I was in Vermont and I used to manage the Warren store, I knew exactly what it was like to be on that side of the register. And I know there are real human beings there that are going through all their crazy things as well. Why would I want to treat anybody differently? So there, I don't know if I would call that the loving, but here um, there's a certain openness, and I'm kind of surprised a lot of customers uh, don't want to enter in these great worlds of the employees, not to, you know, chat them up for hours at a time, but just to have fun or just like, how is it going, or, you know, just that sort of thing. Why wouldn't you be doing that with anybody all the time? Now, of course, don't forget, there's other parts in here too this gets a little complicated i think we also have to use discernment in the course of our lives that for instance i don't want to hang out with somebody who has no boundaries for instance uh because it can get to a point where there are you know sort of like vampire you know vampire people energetically so you know the loving i think also does have a certain kind of discernment so that we can also avoid getting stuck in the traps of like the games that other people will play that we can still embrace it, but not necessarily have to get lost there. Yeah, um, yeah, you're, you're bringing up a number of wonderful, wonderful things. Um, and I love the notion of, like, making ourselves fully available to really authentically engage with people in each moment, like, like engaging with with the cashier, yes. I just I love yes. I love every opportunity. Well, not not necessarily. It's like I think what's 
something that happens is when I come into contact, I enter the energetic sphere of another person on an unconscious level. I, I feel whether they're present or they're engageable from wherever I am. Not that I'm the, the ultimate judge of that in any way, but from my subjective vantage point, whether conscious or unconscious, I sense whether we have a resonance together yeah. and, can, and can communicate on, on that energetic level, which then can open up into the, the physical world where we're, we're actually engaging verbally and in that process, our hearts are opening up and, and going like, Ooh, this is, this is delicious. We're having, we're having a, a real connection here, even yeah. though we're not saying that, but we're feeling that. And to me, that's, and you said that may be kind of a mundane way of, of describing being in our loving, but I think that's just as, important as any other way because there's really no separation between the quote-unquote spiritual or inner experience and the outer experience. I, I absolutely agree with you, Tonyo, and it's a beautiful point. I don't think it's, a, 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 well, you know, I don't think it's really mundane. I think it's an essential point that you're describing, which is basically how with our loving do we still have a certain amount of discernment that, you know, that there are certain people I simply don't interact with, and it's not like that they come into my field and, and I just turn them off, but I think energetically it's already been created with me. I realize to a certain extent, and this was a friend years ago in Colorado, I think I was going through a divorce at the time and telling him whatever the story was, and he just turned to me and goes, Rick, you are one intense person. <laughs> and, and I realize that if, you know, it's not like I have to be with intense people all the time, but I just feel like, and particularly here I am, I'm now 71, that I don't have time anymore to waste on superficialities. So that's why I guess my field puts out a certain kind of energetic of like, well, are we going to do something serious here? Or... You know, shall I just go out in the woods? I mean, there's that great line by Rilke in, in his poem, you know, I Am Too Alone. And that line in there was, it's basically, um, I want to be with, the, with, with those who know, who know or who know secret things or else alone. And that's kind of a, I don't know if it's become sort of like a little bylaw in, in, in my life, but I really want to be, you know, check out people that, you know, I can learn from, and, you know, so what secrets have they learned? It's like one of the great reasons why I love talking to you, because you've done a certain amount of work, so I get to kind of bounce all of this, whatever information I might be cycling at the time, off of you to see, like, hmm, so, you know, it's, is, is any of this making any sense in terms of the general world? Am I just making this stuff up and living in a bubble? Or, in fact, does it have resonance with other people around me? Yeah, and I think when we we respect ourselves in that way, we, I mean, that's 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 what having healthy boundaries is all about. That we don't 
just willy-nilly make ourselves available to everybody because that isn't necessarily going to be healthy for us. And each one of us are unique and different in our energetic um, way of being and our energetic needs. And, and when I'm out in, in the world, I'm continually observing all the people. Like when I'm shopping, you know, I'm walking down the aisles, I'm walking past person after person after person, and I'm observing everybody. I'm observing whether there's, is there somebody there? Is there an opportunity not that I'm looking for opportunities, but I'm, it's my way of, of making myself aware enough so that I can be available. And I, I love that I get to have, you know, it's different on different days, but some days in, in our local co-op, I, I run into lots of people and have little, little engagements with lots of people. And it's, but I'm very selective, as you pointed out, that you are, because I don't have time for superficiality. I'm looking for a kind of an enriching engagement, an energetically yeah. enriching engagement, which on that, you know, defining that energetic aspect, I think is, is another way of talking about our loving or the the loving of the universe you know the, the energy I think you're exactly right Tonio that you know for me and and it sounds like it's similar for you as well that whatever inner work and that's where we were kind of starting this whole conversation about the inner world whatever inner work I've done is a continual process of refinement and it's sort of like always polishing the stone or how am I evolving my soul in the course of my life and so what are those things that will help with that process what are the things that you know that as i've gotten older there just there's certain you know types of people for instance or you know it's like i don't want to go hiking in on the grounds of a factory that's polluting a river you know for instance i'd rather be out in nature where things are clean you how, how do I keep refining this thing? And this refining is really the loving, in essence, because it's, you know, to me, it's, it's the, probably the largest property of the soul that as the soul has been somehow transmuted to our bodies in the course of, you know, being born and coming alive, that how then do we keep bringing that forth? How do we keep enriching it? So, for instance, if I sit down and, and start playing music one night, rather than it feeling like just a practice, practice, excuse me, practice session, how does it feel more like, wow, you know, I went to some place emotional and all of the other technical stuff was just taken care of nice and easily. And there's, you know, there's that great sensation. I know you and I have talked about this before, where all sense of time is lost. And for that one, those moments when that happens, like when I go swimming, you know, when I do that almost every other day, that 
go in there and I, I, I'm such a strange person. I'm the only one who's going slow. Everybody else is screaming past me. And I want to get to that place where all time is lost because ultimately what this is about, even though there's a Zen aspect of, you know, let's get to, you know, that place like in meditation, but also this other part of how do I keep sort of, how do I say it? You know, that I'd like to obliterate the reality of death. And I think the humans are always looking for those experiences of how can we feel so alive that even if it's just for a second, death is nowhere near the horizon, or at least we could say for that moment, it's like, you know, this trip was really worth it, whatever it was that I was doing at that moment. Or another way of saying that could be being in our loving, the way you talk about it, even directly in the face of death. Yes. Yes, in fact, Tonio, you brought the, this beautiful idea up, and I just adore. I have a very dear friend who um, actually, she, she always listens to, has been listening to my radio show for a long time, and she's a big fan of the curriculum. And uh, she was just diagnosed only uh, um, about a week ago with breast, uh, excuse me, lung cancer. And she really has no plans as far as treatment or anything like that. And when we were speaking, this was only just in the last couple of days. I was at her house helping her out. And she was saying, Rick, all I'm asking for is to be fully present right up to my last moment of consciousness as a human. Because I really am kind of excited about where this journey is going to take me. Yes. And I was so touched when she said that because there, just like you were saying, the presence even in the face of death. Yes, and, and as soon as our life, you know, the circumstances or experience of the quality of our life degrades to the point where we're unable to do that, then there's like no, no more point in, in sticking around. Exactly, because I have an aunt who's now in the process of dying, and she's in essence on morphine full-time, and there's a sadness for me. I realize what a great thing that she can be alleviated from pain. On the other hand, there's a sadness of, well, she will not be really particularly conscious at whenever that moment may be that she, she decides to argue, you know, that it happens that she crosses over. Well, I don't have any experience of being on morphine, so I don't know if, you know, what the state of our awareness or consciousness is under the influence of morphine. I don't know if there's, is, is the ability to experience being in the moment on morphine. I think it's pretty, um, it, it's, it's quite from the people I've spoken to, because I've never experienced it directly myself either, Antonio, but the people I've spoken to said that it just blurs everything out because that's what it's intended to do. Particularly, you know, it's an all-encompassing thing. It doesn't do just the pain, um, but it just kind of blurs everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's what I suspected. And, and so when I think about dying and, and suffering, you know, the process of dying where... <laughs> where you might might be experiencing a lot of pain 
and and needing something like morphine to make make it bearable to to be alive in our bodies um then it just seems like that would be an undesirable state to keep you know to maintain yes you know that i had an experience when my son was about 10 he had um he had this very interesting thing that does not happen very often, but he had a twisted testicle uh, and extreme pain. And we ended up going, of course, to the ER, and and they they scheduled surgery for the very next morning. And as he was being wheeled in, oh, I'm going to get emotional. As he's getting wheeled into the ER, um, the pain is coming on, and you could see it on his face, and I immediately get the nurse. And... That was my first experience of witnessing the usefulness of fentanyl, because fentanyl is, I don't know, a hundred times more powerful than, than morphine. Anyhow, it was literally within two seconds after the injection, he was, the pain was gone, and he was so grateful for that. And I was like, thank God that that exists. Mm. Yeah, I've I've been thinking about you know exit strategies <laughs> for the last several years. And tell me what they are. Well, I haven't I haven't really done any serious research into it, but I've been thinking about it, and it seems like fentanyl might be the the way to go because it it seems to be readily available. In fact, it seems like it's hard not to for it not to be available these days. It's like whatever <laughs> whatever you get on the black market seems to have fentanyl in it. So yeah. it seems like it, it might be something easy to get. Of course, it would be um, on the black market, so to speak. It would be done illegally because yeah. you have to have a, uh, a terminal diagnosis confirmed by a second physician and it has you know, with with six months to live or less in order to get, you know, to have access to something like that, at least here in Vermont. I don't think that's yeah. available everywhere. Some states might be a little easier, but... Uh, um, well, this is a nice example of your loving, I, I think, Tonio, which is that, that rather than go through, you know, the, a difficult ordeal physically, you know, with a lot of pain and deterioration, all that kind of stuff, you're basically saying, I would like to check out in this very, as, as healthily as I can to avoid all of the suffering. Right. And when you're getting, you know, near to the end of life, where you've already had a rich and long life, um, there's not that much it just doesn't seem like there's any point in prolonging the uh, the agony based on some kind of um, fantasy hope of being cured <laughs> of something at at that later stage in life. Well, I think that you're you're really pointing quite beautifully to this strange belief in Western medicine that life at all costs, which underlying all of that is a fear of death, that, you know, we can't be like that friend, back to that friend who has lung cancer. She told me when she first came back up from Santa Fe, she said, Rick, my body has given me such a great ride. 
why should I complain about anything? And, you know, she's in her late 70s now, and does she feel like a need to have to, you know, like, do I need, you know, does she need another, like, 12 months of her life or anything? She feels like she's already been given the most incredible gift of the life that she has had. Exactly. Exactly. So but, back but, to our original thing with the loving, you know, and this, this probably has to do a lot with, uh, you know, the, all of those, all the poems that I have in the Curriculum of the Soul, that for me, poetry is the best representation, good poetry, of course, um, best representation of our inner lives and, and that we live in a world right now that and maybe this has always been the case i wasn't here four centuries ago so i don't know but it just seems like the outer world is always doing its darndest to try and distract us to the point that we don't even have we we won't even consider the inner world at all and so then poetry becomes that window in fact if it's okay I'll, here I am with one hand on the phone. I'll read I'm a Tony Hoagland poem, which gets into this. But, of course, it has this kind of crazy sense of humor. And I should mention to the listener that Tony Hoagland was in the process of, um, of pancreatic cancer. So he knew that his time frame was really quite limited. Is it okay if I read a poem? Absolutely. I love sure. when you read, read poems. Okay. And I love... So I'm, here's the poem. The name of the poem is called... Four beginnings for an apocalyptic novel of manners. <laughs> I so love the, the title. <laughs> <laughs> the first one is, Gabriel knew the end of the world would hurt business. It might very well mean his personal death. But he also wondered how the company might take advantage of the circumstances. His dad had taught him well, invest in, in oxygen, funeral parlors, inflatable rafts. Here's the second one. I'm sorry to say this, said the computerized voice, but we need you to kill yourself now. I was standing in a public elevator by myself, so I was understandably startled. Yet it was a woman's voice, so warm and considerate, so motherly, that I quickly understood that this was the voice of the earth and also comprehended that her request was entirely reasonable from every point of view except mine. Here's the third one. <laughs> you look so great in your end-of-the-world house dress and boots with your zinc sunscreen and radiation vest. I was in love with you all over again. After the fire and wrath, in spite of the destruction and the widespread sense of shame and betrayal, you still turned me on. I was attracted, as if you were the bomb shelter and I was the bomb. <laughs> And here's the fourth one. Because of the virus, shaking hands and kissing were forbidden in public, punishable offenses. We had to decide if we were for fraternity and love or loyal to the government. Doesn't that sound familiar? In circumstances like this, I've learned to close my eyes and listen for my deepest, innermost voice. It begins with a hum and rises. The voice that says that the outer world, even on a blue and sunny day, the unreal outer world is already on its way, like a comet from outer space. 
to completely destroy the inner. So there was, it was from this last stanza that when you had asked me by email, so what should we be talking about? And I really got to thinking about this idea of the inner world and what a struggle it is. You know, when you think about, like Tony, before he died, he would, you can find this on YouTube, he has some talks about how poetry has pretty much, with the exception of like some master's programs, pretty much has vanished from our educational system. And, you know, I remember, what was I, I was hearing an interview on another show, and this particular person, it was a musician, and I was astonished that he had said this, but uh, he was telling the interviewer, he said, well, you know, the whole point of education is to simply transfer information from the teacher to the student. And I, and I screamed at the radio at that particular point. I said, you don't have a clue. You have no idea what you're talking about. Education has nothing to do with the transference of information. You can do that on a computer. Education has to do with this idea, this beautiful old idea that each and every human on this planet has some genius implanted in their soul. And that true education, go back to the word educare, I think that's the Latin, which means to draw out the true teacher is going to draw out that genius from that particular student so they get to become who they really are. And wouldn't being in our loving, being the engagement of the true genius within each of us, exactly. in interacting with each other? Exactly. That is exactly it, and that's why I think that that, you know, for instance, with Robert and Carrie and all their teachings, they're just trying to get back to that simple thing as far as the, exactly what you just said, that when we're in our loving, then we are bringing our gifts forward to the world. And it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I don't like the idea when I hear, you know, programs saying, you know, we're, we're going to help you change the world, that kind of thing, because I'm not sure the world necessarily needs to be changed. I think the only thing, as I mentioned in my email to you, the only thing I have any control over on this whole planet is what's going on inside of me. And then if I take truly the mystical point of view that whatever happens inside of me then will determine my perspective and that the outside world becomes a consequence of my inner world. And unfortunately, we have an education system right now that does exactly the opposite. How are we going to best fit in the outer world? Maybe if you're lucky along the way, you might discover your genius and then find that loving. And to me, it seems like the outer world is really here just to challenge us and to keep challenging us so that yes. we can, so that we keep growing and expanding and and discovering the the unfolding levels and layers of our own innate genius absolutely tony you know there's there's a krishnamurti quote somewhere there in the curriculum i can't, can't get it straight anymore anyhow he talks about war as being of a bloody and and some, there's another word i can't remember right now but a bloody 
reflection of what is going on inside of each and every one of us. So that the outer world, if you want to look at it this way, from this perspective, the outer world is simply reflecting back to us as far as what's going on inside of us. If we, for instance, you know, collectively as, as a world culture said, just said, war is now taken off the table. That since that is no longer an option, what are the options now that we have in terms of dealing with other people on the planet? So it's a pretty interesting way of looking. I remember some people complaining about Donald Trump a few years ago, and they said, you know, he's really not so much, you know, like an, an entity in itself, but I think he's more of a reflection of how our culture has gotten very narcissistic, very, uh, you know, feeling like there's no responsibility whatsoever. He's just a manifestation of what a lot of our culture has become. Yeah, he's, and certainly yeah. he would be a perfect manifestation of someone who has no inner life whatsoever. Well, he's he's like, I've heard a number of people talk about how he's like a a great example of an archetype of our our collective shadow. Yes, that's beautiful. That's beautiful, Tonio. Yeah, that's and so to what extent are any of us willing to look at, you know, these sorts of things inside of ourselves? And that's where that whole inner life and inner work piece comes in, which is say I go out and I'm navigating the world, and you know, I, I something happens, so I get a certain kind of feedback, and it's like, oh gosh, this really isn't working out. So this gets back into that kind of the ho'oponopono thing, the 100% responsibility. To what extent did my energetic create this situation? Was it, you know, say my naivete or a false belief, things like that? And then what am I willing to do if I can first even get to the recognition of, oh, gosh, this is how I contributed, taking that responsibility for whatever happened in the situation, then what will I do to clean up that energy? And you're talking about these are shadow aspects of ourselves because these are things that we're still not conscious of or we're not fully conscious of. And right. and as long as we're not fully conscious of them, we're not really able to take full responsibility for them and That's exactly right. But like you say, in my case, you know, in my younger days, I had a long history of relationships that um, always ended very poorly. And it really, I had, and it was with the help, of course, with a therapist, at least that was in my case. I wouldn't say that's going to be everybody's case. But I really had to get used to this idea first, you know, first just being presented with the idea of to the extent that I was abandoning myself i.e. falling into codependence, all the kind of things that are just kind of accepted as norms out in our culture. But once I was made aware of this idea of abandoning myself, then I could start again working on, well, A, how do I notice it wherever I'm doing things? Then how do I start making a difference so that I don't? abandon myself in the future like for instance making a request say of someone and saying i don't feel safe and secure 
in this circumstance. Is there anything you can do about that? Um, and then and then go from there. And that's what that's what the world that's what this world is is here for is to challenge us and help us grow from from these experiences which which are how we kind of plumb the depths of our shadow and unconscious and discover the unresolved or the or the unconscious aspects of ourselves that in whatever way they have come come to influence our our kind of unconscious default pattern patterned um, responses and ways of of engaging with the world um, as we experience the the consequences of behaving or reacting in those unconscious ways and engaging with the world in those unconscious ways, we learn and we continually learn. And as we're having new experiences and learning, we're, we're reformulating the kind of stories and, and meaning and lessons and understanding of our of the world and our relationship with the world not so much of the world itself because that that could be a trap if we think that it's all about the world out there then then we're missing the the essential lesson that it's really what's going on inside of us and how we're responding to the world and which what you were saying earlier and and you know we are some people have said we are meaning-making creatures, and I think what that's about is we're always trying to make sense, or, or which is synonymous with making known the unknown, making conscious the unconscious, <clears throat> and so that's what meaning-making is about, and that's why... <clears throat> we're always telling stories and trying to explain or figure out why things work the way they do and that's what stories are about and some stories are traditional teaching stories to help younger people to understand or to, to get the the wisdom of the elders who have already walked that path and and discovered you know gone through done the work and gone through all those stages and experiences in their own lives and then there's the stories that we you know using the the metaphor of the fool and the tarot where we're younger and we're just stumbling through life and bumping our heads and engaging in in all manner of unhealthy relationships be- because we don't know any better. We don't even know what we're really looking for and we don't know how to to have healthy boundaries because we don't even know what to have boundaries with or from or or for. Because Yeah. And it's 
you know, from our perspective, having, you know, stumbled our way and fumbled and, and, and making, made so many mistakes in our lives. And it, it can feel so wonderful and like such a relief, like this massive kind of almost like universal sigh of relief that we've somehow miraculously survived all these mistakes and, and trips and falls that we've made throughout our lives. And, (laughs) and sort of like, and sort of feeling like we're on the other side of it. Not, not completely because we still keep falling into all kinds of, uh, traps or tripping over ourselves, but not nearly as much or as often as we used to. Well, I think, you know, with those old stories that obviously there was wisdom, and I think particularly those cultures, and this used to be all the cultures at one time, all the cultures that were, you know, land-based or sea-based, nature-based cultures, they all knew that from their encounters with nature, there are predator, predators, physical predators, but there are predatory energies out there, and that humans can also become those predatory energies. And this is where it gets complicated. The stories, of course, will say, "Be you know, keep your eyes open for this sort of thing. But in modern culture, we don't have those, you know, old... Those old things are like, no, I'm going to not hop into the pond filled with crocodiles, things like that. We could be, you know, and we've seen plenty in, in, in the arts, in, in theater, in film, of people that are simply predators. And how do we refine ourselves inside to develop those same boundaries you were talking about so that we don't get stuck in those places or we don't get stuck like when you had those great those great therapists that you had on Justina Larissa talking about grief work. And when I think it was Justine had that whole metaphor about the Titanic, which was just gorgeous. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Which, which role are you going to choose? Because they know as, you know, a professional occupation of working with grief, grief is a place where people can get stuck and not only get stuck, but if you don't deal with it, if you don't get it, you know, get it sort of get the grief moving, if you don't express the grief, that kind of thing, it can take up residence and start showing up as body symptoms. And that's not a good thing. So how I think there's always a continual updating, you know, sort of like there was that Michael Mead idea that every generation has to have their version of the love song. So whatever, say, yours and my, you know, revelation, our our whole culture we're doing in terms of a love song, the next generation is doing something completely different that, you know, we just scratch our heads. But it's like, well, but this is their version. As long as they're getting the feeling, isn't that all that matters? Hmm. Wow. You you just opened up quite a few... <laughs> I know. You it's a pretty there. big topic we're talking about here, Tonio. But just to reinforce what you were saying before was exactly right that Earth turns into this incredible school. Are we going to learn? Are we going to evolve? Or are we just going to spin our wheels? Or, you know, whatever it may be, we all have these incredible choices. 
I would hate to think that at the point, and who knows, today could be the last day on the planet for me, but I would hate to think like, oh, gosh, I still haven't cleaned this thing up in terms of, say, being more kind or being more loving, that sort of thing, letting my anger run the show rather than my loving run the show. You, you brought up, you talked about grief, and I was thinking about grief within the last couple of days and, and feeling into it and reflecting back into my past. And grief is one of those things that, that is not just for, you know, grieving about somebody dying. And we're actually, we actually grieve on, I would say probably many of us grieve almost every day. We have something to grieve. Like, um, anytime something occurs that disappoints us or doesn't, or, or feels like, like it didn't turn out the way we, we had wanted it or hoped it to be, there's, there's an experience of grief that we have to process and go through. Mm -hmm. And, and we're not, in our culture, we're not trained we're not taught, and people don't talk about the the very natural <clears throat> and essential process of grieving, and and how it. I think it applies to almost every aspect of our life, and that it's actually a very very important and healthy thing to to do and to work with, and. Oh. Yeah, absolutely, Tonio. I mean, I think of, you know, as I mentioned to you, and I don't need to talk about any details, I just finished out a relationship. It was really by my choice. And what I'm, I, I have this interesting thing. On one hand, I can feel so great because I had set a certain boundary which got violated. So I didn't abandon myself. I didn't say, oh, that's okay. It'll be fine, whatever. I stayed with this is important because it was down to safety and security. On the other hand, there's this grieving that's simultaneously taking place of, oh my gosh, all the amazing experiences I had with this person and the, the distances we actually covered and how much more could have happened, uh, you know, under other circumstances, but that's not where it is right now. So I'm doing this simultaneous thing and this is like on a moment to moment basis. And it's tough. And this is, I think, part of the complication of being human because it's never, very rarely, black and white. It's really, you know, there's always so many levels happening all the time. And that's why going back to that, that inner life, the inner, the inner world thing, that, you know, it, sometimes I see people get stuck on certain levels, like, you know, physically, how are we going to save the earth? But I, when I think of, like, how the soul works, and this is our inner life and our loving, how do we weave the physical, the emotional, the psychological, and the spiritual all together into one fabric? Well, That's a lot of work. Well, and, at the, and at the same time, it's like they are already intricate, you know, inextricably woven together, and how can we come to recognize that 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 holistic, essential 
aspect of reality. Yeah, and it's tough because we're in a culture that really, you know, the emotional is, when it, certainly when it comes from a capitalistic point of view, the emotional is pretty useless. At least that's, that's a capitalistic, you know, frame of mind. And so here, you know, I was, when I was writing an email... It's oh, worse than useless. So. It's worse than useless. <laughs> it's a weakness. Exactly. Instead of the strength of like, wait a minute, what if, what if I check and check in and see what my emotions have to say about this or my intuition or even my instincts? And that's where that refinement of the inner life, and it takes a certain amount of some kind of discipline or practice that have, could be meditation, it could be gardening, could be just walking, could be something, but it has to be at a certain point, there has to be silence and solitude in order to just be with yourself, to find out where the crazy stories are happening and where is the truth. So, you know, when I was, I was doing this, this, this email oh, in the last week or so, and, and I was breaking the whole thing down, and let's pretend for a second, Tonio, that here's the secret of life. And just two sentences. Discover who and what you love, then nurture those connections, knowing your life depends on it. And never abandon yourself for anyone or anything that does not support who and what you love. Yeah, <clears throat> and I think it requires us respecting and honoring and f noticing and feeling into all of these different aspects of our, our being. You know, our, our outer physical senses, taking in information from the outer world and, and experiencing it in a tangible, tactile way, as well as our the emotion, the feelings we're having, the yeah. the thoughts we're having about it, and and any and any potential transcendent insights that we may have, that they all are continually informing each other. They're all helping, you know, coming together in a kind of multi-dimensional puzzle that is who and what we most essentially are as we're unfolding in each moment. Yes. Yeah. So in that regard, because I, I, of course, this is just me. I love to mix things up. Um, if I could read a prose poem, and this comes from our current poet laureate of the United States, Ada Limon, if that's okay. Ooh, I'm, I'm, I was just thinking about, you know, it being time for a poem. So, yes, absolutely. <laughs> anytime, so, anytime you have anything like that, please. Oh, yeah, I have a bunch pulled, but this, this is a fun one. Um, the name of it, of the piece is called Calling Things What They Are. And so here it is. It's, it's a prose poem, as I mentioned. I pass the theater and yell, Grackle party. And then an hour later, I yell, Morning dub after party. I call the feeder the party and the seat on the ground the after party. I'm getting so good at watching that I've even dug out the binoculars an old poet gave me back when I was young and heading to the Cape with so much future ahead of me, it was like my own ocean. Tuft Titmouse, I yell, and Lucas laughs and says, thought so. But he is humoring me. He didn't think so at all. 
He didn't think so at all. My father does the same thing. Shouts out as the feeder, at the feeder announcing the party attendees. He throws out a whole peanut or two to the Stellar's Jay who visits on a low oak branch in the morning. To think the, there was a time I thought birds were kind of boring. Brown bird, gray bird, black bird, blah, 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 blah. Then I started to learn their names by, to learn their names by the ocean and the person I was dating said, that's the problem with you, Limon. You're all fauna and no flora. And I began to learn the names of trees. I like to call things as they are. Before, the only thing I was interested in was love, how it grips you, how it terrifies you, how it annihilates and resuscitates you. I didn't know then that it wasn't even love that I was interested in, but my own suffering. I thought suffering kept things interesting. How funny that I called it love, and the whole time, it was pain. Hmm. What What do you think? Yeah, I, I think we do have this this inordinate fascination with our pain. It's like, it. Yeah. It's kind of like we're. Our attention tends to be grabbed by the things that we are most adverse to and that we feel most threatened by. So pain is one of those things. We, we dread pain. It's like everything that we fear become the things that we are most susceptible to having our attention hijacked by. But you know what's interesting about it, at least, and tell me, tell me what your thoughts are. The thing about pain, at least for me, is there's no question at the moment of pain, like nausea is one that really like, you know, right before I'm about to throw up is really a tough one for me. But there's no question in my mind I'm fully alive at that moment. Yes, it, it kicks us into a kind of existential gear because... Our first, well, for me, I'll speak for myself, my first impulse is how, how do I lessen this pain? How do I change this experience of pain? How do I escape yeah. this experience of pain? Yeah. And, and that's what I mean by the fear of that pain or, or the, the ad, adversarial relationship to the pain hijacking our awareness and consciousness away from, you know, how do we find our loving or our, our ability to be fully, authentically present with this experience that I'm having right now? Yeah, like I was mentioning about Marianne and her approaching her death and saying how much she really wanted to be as fully present as possible for this particular event. That, you know, it's so beautiful. There was a curiosity rather than a banishment. A curiosity. And this, this goes back to that place, you know, our own, you know, individual learnings inside. Rather than me running away from, say, where I used to abandon myself, now, you know, I have this little process I do, Tonio, that um, with my own crazy background growing up, 
uh, that I had a mostly unavailable mother. And, and there was a certain point right around puberty, um, something developed inside of me. And, and now there is this very young part of me. If I go into a group, you know, a room that's filled with lots of people, and this could be a few hundred, that very young part of me can tell within less than a second who the most beautiful and emotionally unavailable women are in that room. And this is what would get me unconsciously to decide, well, this is who I must be attracted to. Now I have this whole other process where when that young part starts doing it, it's really, to me, an astonishing information. I put my figure to Livy, I put my arm around that young part of myself, and I say, thank you for this information. Thank you so much. Now I know where I don't have to go. Mm. And I'm speaking with... Rick Halterman, he's the author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminosity or Luminescence of the Ordinary. And this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio, the Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, so, so I don't know if you have any process that's, that's similar for you, Tonio, where you can have that conversation with yourself and and sort of create a reassurance of like I understand what's going on here, but I'm not going to let you run the show. You know that that younger part, something like that. Um. Y- yeah. Well, it it's different in each circumstance, but yeah, there the times when I notice that I'm having an adversarial response to what I'm experiencing, and I. And I realized that, oh, this doesn't feel good being, being against or, or res- trying to resist or, or being in adversarial relationship with reality itself. Yeah. It's like, it, it's like how Byron Katie says, when you argue with reality, you lose. Always. <laughs> on, only 100% of the time. <laughs> So tell me, what, what do you do at that point when you recognize this is happening? Well, as I was saying, it's different in each moment. Sometimes I'm, it's like I'm scrambling to get, to get back to where, where I want to be, you know, but it depends. It's, um, it depends on how, how aware I am in the moment, but I, I, Sometimes I will use certain tools like Ho'oponopono is a, is a wonderfully effective and incredibly simple approach. I also use, there are a couple of other approaches that I use that are similar in, in the way they, in their approach to things, but they're not quite as simple. It's like sometimes different things work better than others. And it it depends on how hijacked I, I am. Like sometimes mm. I'm so emotionally and even intellectually hijacked that I think that I have to, to struggle. I have to make an effort. I have to fight to escape the clutches of, of this adversarial feeling I'm having when in reality, all I really need to do is to relax and let go of that. 
And sometimes, though, I think that that a little bit of distance, because I know exactly that place you're talking about. I'll be so embroiled in it. And, like, you know, I need to separate somehow. It's like, who is it? Was it Harville Hendricks would write about in his books about couples' relationships that once the power struggle starts showing up, that it's like, how does one disengage from that struggle so that, because once the power struggle starts, nobody wins. Everybody knows, you know, how, how that turns out. How does one then disengage and say, hmm, is there another way for me to re-engage so we don't have to go to that place, basically of shame and blame, where, again, nobody's going to win at that point. All it is is just digging a deeper hole. Yes, but there, we have been so deeply conditioned to 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 believe that we have to fight for what is right <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> presently in our world right now there are so many dramatic ex- examples of 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 ways that things are are just like going to hell in a handbasket and that we have to do something we have mm-hmm. to we have to find a way to change things we have to fight or struggle against these people the the the, the people on the other side the other who is right. who is right. who is getting in the way of our being able to to make things better yeah the or, dark forces or whatever right exactly what whatever whatever the symbol whatever the metaphor or the embodiment of that unconscious or shadow adversarial aspect that that exists inside of each one of us that we still need to come to terms with and learn somehow to integrate in a a kind of holistic way so that we're not continually fighting against it and projecting it out into the world in order to fight against it. And when we do you know that, that... There's a, a tool that, that I use, and I, you know, I don't know, tell me if, if you do a version of this as well, Tonio, but that tool is... is in, this is only in the last 10 years of my life, probably, is a discernment of, is this the ego-centered world or the soul-centered world? And I can tell if it's the ego-centered world because it's related to, very easily you can see, is this about identity? Is this then leading to shame and blame? All those kinds of things. In the soul-centered world, or like, let's go back to the loving, that the loving is really... You know, the loving, this is, if I was to speak, to translate for the loving, that identity is what we are, but not who we are. And, and, and from the loving point of view, it's far more interested in who we are rather than what we are. And if I can make a, you know, discernment, say, when something comes up in my life, and then shift to that soul, centered thing. Like say if there's something going on in a relationship and somebody's starting to do the shame and blame and, and I'll go to the soul place, which is like, so what's the dance what's the dance going on here? Rather than, 
you know, you know, this or that or against this or anything like that. So what's the actual dance, you know, and how have I contributed to that dance on my part? And can we have a discussion from that place? Does something like that happen for you at, at all when you're, when you're, when things show up? Oh yeah. I have all kinds of variations on that. Like sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's like, okay, you know, recognizing Oh yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking this thing. This is, this is another story that, that my head is, is telling me about this situation. And when I can remember that, I can just go, okay, that's just my head's version of reality. And, and is that, is that something that I'm, I'm really interested in experiencing yeah. and continuing to experience? And, and of course, the effect of that, of engaging and holding on to the head story is that it keeps us locked out of the direct feeling experience of the present moment. Yes. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Do you remember you had a great guest, um, from Maine? And, uh, and, and they were referred to as they, but the, they had this wonderful acronym for the word God. And, and what they said was, God translates to gift of desperation. Ooh, gift of desperation. And this was on your show. I even wrote it down because of your show. I was like, oh my God, that's so good. And the gift of desperation, meaning that what you were just describing, Tonio, that if we stay stuck in our heads, you know, then we're always pretending we know what's going on, blah, 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 blah. But if we can get to this other place of, I don't know, there's a desperation place, I don't know, then at that point, something can show up simply by allowing that possibility. All we're doing is opening the door. And then what can show up, who knows? And when it will show up, who knows? How it will show up, I don't know. I had a dream last night, Tonio, and uh, and you know I've been I've been doing a lot of melatonin lately because there have been these struggles in my own life, and and then in this dream it was very short and very simple. But I was at this little gathering, maybe like a dozen or so, and it was going to be this community thing to talk about some issue. And then all of a sudden, I hear a piano playing. There's an upright piano, and over there was a very aging but alive Ray Charles singing the song, I'm a Lucky Man, and not the one by Emerson, Lake, and, Par- and, and, and Palmer, but it sounded like a jazz standard. That was the whole dream. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you for giving me that little message. Mm. I, I love that, and I love, I love dreams. I love that whole other world. Yeah. And there's, again, now we're back into the inner world, this whole dream, the dreamscape, you know, and, and what information we get out of that. Some people don't really pay a lot of attention to it. Other people are very much connected. And, you know, of course, I think there's always the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the tendency for some to want to literalize 
well, the dream told me that, you know, you were a bad person. I was like, well, no, actually, that dream was saying that that bad person part may be actually a part of you, the dreamer, and that's something for you to give some thought to looking at, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, we don't want to get into literal and analytical. It's always metaphorical, and that's why we love poetry as well, because it's always metaphorical. It's always talking about something else that if we could really name it that clearly, well, then it wouldn't be the soul world. It, it would be back to the scientific and the analytical world. There's nothing wrong with the scientific or analytical world. It has its place. But from my perspective, it should never trump the soul world. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned um, the thinking mind and, and, and the non-thinking approach. And I had something I could read, if you're interested. Sure, let's hear it. Um, so, a young girl asked the great Korean Zen teacher, Seung San, Seung Sa, So and So and Sa, about her cat who had died. And she she says she asks, "What happened to Catsy? Where did he go?" So and Sa says, "Where do you come from?" She said. My mother's belly. Where does your mother come from? The girl was silent. So and so said, everything in the world comes from the same one thing. It's like in a cookie factory, many different kinds of cookies are made. Lions, tigers, elephants, houses, people. They all have different shapes and different names, but they're all made from the same dough and they all taste the same. So all the different things that you see, a cat, a person, a tree, the sun, this floor, all these things are really the same. And then she asks, what are they? People give them different names, but in themselves, they have no names. When you are thinking, all things have different names and different shapes. But when you're not thinking, all things are the same. There are no words for them. People make words. A cat doesn't say, I'm a cat. People say, this is a cat. The, right. sun, the sun doesn't say, my name is sun. People say, this is the sun. Yeah. So when somebody asks you, what is this? How should you answer? And she says, I shouldn't use words. Very good. So if, any, if somebody asks you, what is Buddha? What would be a good answer? She was silent. So and so said, Now you ask me. And she asked him, What is Buddha? So and so hit the floor. She laughs. So and so <laughs> said, Now I ask you, What is Buddha? And she hits the floor. What is God? She hits the floor. What is your mother? She hits the floor. What are you? She hits the floor. Very good. This is what all things in the world are made of. You and Buddha and God and your mother and the whole world are the same. She smiled. So-and-so so -so said, do you have any more questions? 
you still haven't told me where Catsy went. (laughs) (laughs) So and so leaned over, looked into her eyes and said, you already understand. She said, oh, and hit the floor again and then laughed. (laughs) As she was opening the door, she turned to so-and-so and said, but I'm not going to answer that way when I'm in school. I'm going to give regular answers. <laughs> so, Tonyo, that's great. Isn't that great? But there's a little more. Okay. So, responding to a letter from another Zen beginner who had trouble grasping the value and the very notion of don't know mind, he writes back to her, Throw away all opinions, all likes and dislikes, and only keep the mind that doesn't know. Your before-thinking mind, my before-thinking mind, all people's before-thinking minds are the same. This is your substance. Your substance, my substance, the substance of the whole universe become one. So the tree, the mountain, the cloud, and you become one. The mind that becomes one with the universe is before thinking. Before thinking, there are no words. Same and different are opposite words. They are from the mind that separates things. Nice. That's really nice. I don't know if there's much to say beyond that, Tonio. I love that you mentioned our thinking mind because I just discovered this and I love the simplicity of the way he talks about the non-thinking mind yeah that's beautiful you know and I've wondered this has only been in the last year wondered about because it's connected to this that is maybe the first and last spiritual question I don't know or just the first and last spiritual statement, I don't know. Is that the starting and the end point of really what we're doing? And that in the process, there's discovering everything to that openness. Like Richard Bartley used to talk about with Matrix Energetics, how do we live in a world of unlimited possibilities? And how do we even do that? Which was really a, a pretty wild question. And so, in essence, we're getting back to the loving again. Whatever kind of inner work is necessary, first to recognize that we even have this aspect, like you were just reading in that story. We have this aspect that's already in our DNA. It's already there. Then how do we develop it through discipline, through discernment, and and just a certain kind of practice, whatever that may be, in order to allow this whole like like what the Buddhists would say, the Buddha nature to come forward. And that don't know mind is always available to the infinite possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the beautiful thing about it is that unlike a lot of other spiritual practices, this is not religious. It's not based on any kind of dogma. It's not based on, you know, you know who or what you believe, that sort of thing. It's literally available, and now we're getting into, like, you know, the, the, the Tao Te Ching, 
you know, this whole train that this is available to every human being on this planet every second of the day. Exactly. You don't have to go to a cathedral. You don't have to, you know, like get ordained. You don't have to have been baptized, anything like that. It's available to everybody. And to what extent does, are we willing to participate? And I think it's sort of sad that we live in a culture that is so dominated by capitalism right now, you know, sort of like capitalism on steroids. And that is really what's making a lot of the decisions. And this in, even includes politically. You know, that it's really like, so what's going to be the best for capitalism versus what's going to be the best for the planet? Like when you had those two wonderful people that were talking about the, 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 the learnings from indigenous peoples and that for them, capitalism wasn't even anywhere, even on the horizon. It was really like, well, what makes sense with this incredible living entity that we happen to be located on? right at here at this moment what works with that living entity and that living entity isn't just a static thing it's really quite alive it has its own feelings has its own responses you know lately i've been reading this um this book by cy montgomery the soul of an octopus and love these little encounters where and this never used to happen you know like 20 or 30 years ago but you go to the aquarium and she'll you know, if she has created a relationship with the octopus, immediately her arms are in the tank and the octopus has their tentacles around the arms and there's a whole conversation taking place between the octopus in particular that really can taste and sense all these things through their tentacles and is having a conversation with a human and really can sensing like when Cy went there with a friend who happened to be, you know, like a, a pack of cigarettes smoking a day, the octopus touched that person and, and immediately recoiled. And she only guessed, but it's like, probably could sense, you know, the, uh, the chemicals that were in the bloodstream of that person and said, no, I really can't do this. But with other people, it's just like, like being close, close friends. Mm. So here are these, you know, more examples of how the earth is so vibrantly alive and is so willing to respond to us and is already responding to us, to what extent are we going to be willing to get back in sync with that, or are we just going to still keep doing our little orbit thing, and uh, Lord knows what will happen. Yeah, and it doesn't matter at all what we did in the previous moment. We can still, right. we can still enter into the present moment now. You know, that's a beautiful thing about... And, and, you know, there's, of course, to get to forgiveness, you still have to cover the emotional and the psychological places, you know, like getting back to safety and security. But the beautiful thing about this is that, like you were just saying, any moment one can make amends, one can forgive themselves for believing something, for even judging themselves, for, you know, doing it. And one can follow up if necessary. You could do amends in person. You could do it just by prayer. You could do, you could send a letter that... Anything can change. You know, there's that great line at the end of the Marie Howe poem called The Meadow where she talks about, like, any moment, the words, you know, because she's talking about wildflowers blooming in the spring. And she said, in any moment, you know, those words that have been lying asleep on your tongue could wake up and you could create the sentence that would change your life. It's available every moment. Yeah. 
Yep, exactly. So should I give you one more kind of a Thanksgiving sort of poem, but it's still in this terrain? Absolutely. This comes from Joy Harjo, who was our previous poet laureate of the U.S., and I adore her stuff because she always has kind of a a Native American thing because she's from the Muscogee Nation down in Oklahoma. The name of the poem is called Perhaps the World Ends Here. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions of what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put their arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor falling down selves as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table, we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse. We give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. I love the way that ends. Yeah. And that last sweet bite is this present moment, right? Exactly. That is exactly right, Tonya. That's perfect. Well... We have just a little over two minutes to go. Okay, so you have something to finish up with. I have a poem, but I don't know if I have enough time. Yeah, I think I have enough time. Let's go. This is titled The Center of the Universe by Hannah Emerson. Please try to go to hell frequently because you will find the light there. Yes, yes, please. Try to kiss the ideas that you find there. Yes, yes, please. Try to get that it is the center of the universe. Yes, yes, please. Try to help yourself by kissing the hot, hot life that is born there. Yes, yes, please. Try to yell in hell. Yes, yes, please. Try to free yourself by pouring yourself into the gutter. All guttural, guttural yell. Yes, 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 please. Try to get to that... You become the being that you came here to be. Yes, yes, please. Try to go to the great, great, great fire that you created because you become the light that the fire makes inside of you. Yes, yes, please. Try to kiss yourself for going there. Yes, yes, please. Get that you are reborn there. Yes, yes, please. Now begin your day. <laughs> Tonio, you are the light of that fire for me. Well, Rick, you are always such a pleasure to talk to. There's very few people I get to do this with, and I'm talking about around the planet. Um, so, you know, to be able to have these kind of conversations, it just so fills me up, 
Now, I'm celebrating my 10-year-old friend's birthday today at a swimming pool, then going down to Santa Fe to do some Congolese dancing. So things are looking great. Well, thank you again so much for being on the show. And uh, until next time, be well. Thanks so much for having me, and you have a great holiday. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.